Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, who knew committee seats would be the latest battleground in partisan politics? It's a political stunt, uh, much like House Republicans' unjust unjust removal of other leading Democrats from key committees uh, in recent weeks, and it is a disservice to the American people. Americans have soured on law enforcement. In the latest poll, 39% of Americans said they are very or somewhat confident. That's down five percentage points. Plus, the latest provocative move from the Chinese government cancels a diplomatic trip abroad. The United States government has detected and is tracking a high-altitude surveillance balloon that is over the continental United States right now. And extending the school year as state lawmakers consider shortening summer vacation. All of that coming up this hour, but first, more and more Seattle politicians are calling it quits as no less than four city council members have decided not to run for re-election. Joining me now is Ron Dotsauer. He is the founder of Strategies 360 and a political analyst and political strategist. And with all of these announcements that we're seeing from the Seattle City Council, the most recent of which, Tammy Morales saying she is going to run for re-election, what do you make of it? Because we're going to have a very different council in the next year. We sure are. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? They've certainly been up against a, a number, a set of very challenging issues that they have not been able to resolve. And as a consequence, the ratings, I have never seen the ratings for a generic Seattle City Council be as low as this particular body of council members. And that may be a piece of what's kind of encouraging people to move on. Okay, like, for example, in Sawant's case, I'm not buying what she's selling, which is I think she got out because she has a really strong primary opponent that's probably going to beat her. And I think that that played into a number of these folks' decisions not to run again because they've looked at these numbers. They, they saw the KOMO poll. I mean, to be ranked at the bottom of a favorability that rivals Donald Trump in Seattle, I don't know how much lower you can go, Jeff. That, that is so, pretty low, to that, say the least. Yeah, and, and I'm talking about in the city of Seattle. So the political tea leaves were pretty clear that the Seattle voting constituency is looking for changes. We saw a change in the mayor's office, a much more, you know, Harold's a much more moderate pro-business guy. The lady, I forget her name right now, Jeff, they just got elected to the Seattle City Council. It comes with a little bit more of a business background. Sarah Nelson. And that was starting to send a signal to the other council members that, well, maybe what they were what they were touting wasn't going to work anymore politically. And at the point of that spear, in my opinion, Sawant was the poster child for all that was wrong with the Seattle City Council, in my opinion. Well, let's kind of run down the list here. Shama Sawant, Lisa Herbold, and Alex Peterson have all said they are not running for re-election. Deborah Juarez has hinted at it, basically saying it's her last year. She hasn't made any official announcement, but uh, everyone's saying that she's going to be out. And that is four of the seven seats that are up for re-election this year, and there are only nine seats on the council. One more person jumps out, then you're going to have a majority shift. Yeah, isn't that something? I don't know, in all the years I've tracked this in Seattle, I have seen so many incumbents decline to pursue re-election. And so, in in, in Herbold's case, she's a bit of a 
I think she's a disciple of Sawan, is she not? Uh, um, you, you can sort of say that. I would probably put Tammy Morales more in that category. Lisa Herbold yeah. represents West Seattle. Certainly she's she's progressive, and but yeah. I don't think anyone's quite as left as Shama Sawan. Oh, no, that doesn't exist on the political spectrum. And we'll see what happens with Morales. She may end up you know, drawing a pretty strong opponent too, right? So I think this in this election cycle, all bets are off, Jeff. I think that through a variety of other conversations and research that the Seattleites are looking for some new leadership in the city that is much more in the flavor of the mayor. They're tired of uh, Seattle being a poster child for homelessness or and not getting any resolution. You know, there's been a lot of money spent in this community on homelessness and the results are just not there. And this is the council that that wanted to reduce law enforcement. That's one of their badge of political honor, right? Was to was to freeze out the police department. That's not going over very well with the citizens of this community. And you know, we saw that big spike in in all the kinds of various crimes that are going on in the city. Now that seems to be turned around a little bit. I think that the mayor has really put his shoulder into it and is making this a priority and is working on cleaning up a number of these issues. But the council was not necessarily his kindred spirits when it came to sort of changing this behavior. So how do you see this kind of playing out? Because for the last several years, certainly under the previous mayor, it's been really the city council kind of running the show, even though we have a strong mayor form of government here. Mayor Bruce Harrell seems to be kind of grabbing some of those reins back, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And, And frankly, that's what the voters in Seattle wanted when they elected him. Their fatigue with the behavior of this council had run its course. That could not, in fact, you had a council president running in the other position, correct? Yes, Lorena Gonzalez. So she was the embodiment of the city council and all of its ills, if you will. And the voters in Seattle said, nope, that's not what we want. We want a Bruce Harrell who will bring moderation back, you know, who's not going to slice up the police budget and who wants to you know, to bring some new civility to the process, okay? And I think that momentum from that race is now carrying over at some level into these resignations and the turnover. Now, we'll see how that vacuum gets filled, right? And at the end of the day, this really comes down oftentimes to matchups. And we'll see who ends up filing and the kind of candidates that end up running. But I think I pretty I pretty clearly understand what the voters in the city of Seattle are looking for. And it's not what they've been getting for the last four to eight years. But with the Seattle City Council, I think there's also a phenomenon at play that we see with Congress a lot in that the council as a whole, widely despised, widely hated, but people in their very specific districts are loyal to their very specific representatives. Well, again, there's a lot of reasons for that. It hasn't, you know, simply name ID, okay, sometimes can carry the day. Because to a certain extent, the public doesn't pay as much of attention to the city council races as maybe they should, because they're making some very important budget decisions that impacts everybody's quality of life here. And so sometimes incumbents with a name ID can just get away with being there, right? But I think what was going on and what's changed is I think that there was going to be more challengers to these folks. And I know that's particularly the case in Swans. And I really believe that's why she got out. That might have been the case in some of these other other situations as well. Time will tell, Jeff. 
once we see that when that filing opens up and people pursue office and where they come from and who they are will will really be a big tell, if you will, in terms of what we're going to be seeing on the ballot in November. Well, and then you look at what this past council has done, or at least over the last four to maybe six or eight years, which includes a lot of the members that are now stepping down, and it's that fight against homelessness, the creation of the King County Regional Homelessness Authority. Seattle is dumping millions into this extra layer of government, and, and as you pointed out, they're not seeing any results. Nope. And that's, that's the over-the-top frustration that's going on in the city of Seattle right now. They're just throwing money at it and not getting results. It's that simple. It's not more complicated than that. So how, if you're the city council, how do you respond to that? How do you get those results that the people want? Well, I think, you know, you're going to have to take, I think you need to step back to a certain extent and, and look at this holistically and see if they can come up with programs and initiatives that are results-oriented. You know, and for example, they don't want homelessness sitting outside the Woodland Park Zoo. They don't want homelessness sitting across from schools. And there's cases where they just want them to pick up and be moved out, okay, and cleaned up. And the mayor has done some of that. And I think the public wants to see more of it. I really do. I just think they're tired of it. And they don't see any results by all the money that's being spent. And it hasn't I don't know that anybody can show there's been any real results from it all at this point. We'll see. But that's who the voters are going to be looking for. Who's going to come in here and have some ideas that can say, listen, I think we ought to be doing this and this can work. But how much pushback would you expect from the left? Because at the announcement that Tammy Morales had earlier in the week in which she said she will run for re-election... She was saying, you know, she's against homeless sweeps. She's against moving people out of their encampments. There's a lot of people in certain districts, particularly the 3rd District on Capitol Hill, that are strongly opposed to that. Yeah, well, from the research I've seen, she's on the wrong side of that policy, okay? I'm just going to tell you that in the city of Seattle. All you have to do is look back to last fall's poll. What she's saying is not in keeping with what the voters in Seattle want and expect. So if you are Tammy Morales and you are running for re-election or if you're one of the others that hasn't announced yet, how do you fight back? How do you fight back against this narrative that the council's been running the show and screwing things up? Well, that's up to her opponent, okay? (laughs) To start drawing that fine line about what she's been saying and what has not happened, okay? We'll see if she draws a strong opponent that has a more moderate, centrist, and a results-oriented view that says we just can't throw money at the problem or turn our, turn our heads away from what's going on, which she seems to be wanting to do. All right, Ron Dotsauer, political strategist and founder of Strategies 360. Thank you so much for your time and insight. I'm sure we'll be talking more throughout the campaign. Okay, buddy, you take care, okay? We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, Americans' views on police have changed quite dramatically. We'll take a look at the numbers when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Poge. A public confidence in the police 
dropped after Tyree Nichols was fiercely beaten by officers in Memphis last month, with Americans increasingly doubtful that law enforcement officers are properly trained in using appropriate force or that they treat white and black people equally. All of this according to a Washington Post-ABC News poll. And joining us now on the Northwest Newsline is Scott Clement. He is the polling director for the Washington Post. And uh, well, I guess, first off, break down some of these numbers that uh, are somewhat concerning. So uh, our poll asked the same question we've been asking in several polls since 2014. How confident are you that police in this country are adequately trained to avoid the use of excessive force? Um, in the latest poll, 39% of Americans said they are very or somewhat confident that's down five percentage points from 2021, and it's down uh, eight percentage points from 2020. That was following George Floyd's murder. Um, if you look back further to 2014, 54% of Americans had confidence in, uh, in police to avoid the using excessive force. So there's been a sort of steady drop over the last decade on this question. We also asked people uh, whether they're confident in police uh, to treat white and black people equally. And there's also been a drop in police confidence on that. 41% are confident today, 47% in 2020. That compares to 52% in 2014. So in both these measures, we've seen the same pattern. And I would imagine that the numbers are quite different depending on race. They are. Race and partisanship are the two biggest factors in these. And uh, looking at race and ethnicity, uh, we have enough sample of white, black, and Hispanic adults to uh, show results over time. The recent shifts have been concentrated among white Americans and Hispanic Americans. Um, today, still white Americans are more confident than others, 46% in uh, avoiding excessive force. But that's down from 50% in the last two polls we've done and down from 62% in 2014. This is the first time in our polls where less than half white Americans have expressed confidence on police uh, using excessive force. Among Latinos, 34% are confident in this. That compares to 50% in 2020. Uh, confidence is the lowest among black Americans, 20% on use, avoiding excessive force. Um, that is down from 28% in 2020, but uh, still uh, quite negative ratings for police at all, at all points. And you mentioned partisanship as well. Exactly. It's very interesting. So uh, one of the biggest changes in criticism of police on excessive force has been among Republicans, a group that typically is much more uh, positive about police. 60% in the latest poll say they're confident that police are trained properly to avoid excessive force. Uh, that's down, though, from 72% last in 2021 and from 77% in 2020. So there's been a decline among that group. Uh, there's also been a decline among political independents from 45% to 39% since 2020. And Democrats are the least confident, uh, 20%. Uh, and their, their their views have only dipped slightly since 2020. I can imagine this is going to play a big role in the upcoming elections because you, you have this issue of police brutality and, and all of these uh, images coming out of Memphis and Minneapolis and things of that nature. Uh, this is going to be a, something of a wedge issue, wouldn't you think? You know, it's one of those issues that clearly hits very close to home, and the politics of it have proven very complicated over the last few years. There was a big push uh, in cities after uh, the murder of George Floyd to reform police practices. Um, 
But uh, politicians who have uh, tried to cut police budgets don't seem to have done very well politically. And the the rise in crime during the pandemic has led to pressure uh, to deal with the issue. Uh, and, and, and one of the more popular ways to deal with the issue is to uh, increase police forces, even though confidence in police is dropping. So I think you have these counter- uh, forces going on in the country where people really are, are becoming less satisfied and trusting in police officers, even as they see them as important to addressing uh, the problem of crime. Well, we certainly saw that here in the city of Seattle. We had all sorts of protests following George Floyd's murder, but the Seattle City Council wanted to defund the police. There was a push to, to cut the budget by 50%, and now the lawmakers that were on that city council are not running for re-election because they're looking at your poll numbers and, and, and local polls as well, saying that that's not really going over well with voters. Yeah, and, and one of the things that helps link these findings, I think, together or these experiences together is asking people how they want to approach crime. I mean, I think people are seeing a problem and seeing 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 examples uh, like Tyree Nichols, like George Floyd, which uh, they're seeing uh, signs of um, police brutality and that they that they have a problem with, and and if you look back ten or fifteen years, um, you know Trayvon Martin, it comes to mind. The, the public wasn't as united in, in in criticizing police even on these fronts. Uh, so it it that that's happening. But you know, on the local level, the other thing is that people tend to be more trusting of their police and their police forces in where they live than maybe nationally. Some of these incidents that they see on TV might concern them about police conduct broadly, but when they think about their own police officers, they'd like to think of themselves as the exception. But you look back 15 years, like you say, we didn't have cell phones, and, or at least not cell phones that could record high-quality video. You think that's changing a lot of minds? It's undoubtable. It's, un- it's undoubtable in my mind uh, because of the attention that, that that I mean, the, the the murder of George Floyd was really a big a big point where so many people could see it for themselves, and we saw how much people were following the issue and uh, how much they got engaged uh, in in not just in protests in Washington where we're used to them, but far across the country, and uh, so that that has that has reshaped um, some of how people think about police. Um, at the same time, it's really remarkable uh, to see declines in confidence of an institution that uh, still remains one of the most um, trusted professions in the country. Gallup polls tracking confidence in America's institutions have tracked a broad decline across religious institutions, across government, across all kinds for a very long time. Police was one of those of an exception. It stayed popular, sort of up there almost with the military at times. But um, that that's changing, uh, and and I think the dynamic you've pointed out on video and evidence is that really does have an impact. All right, Scott Clement, polling director for the Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Certainly, we have to take another quick break. But coming up next, it's a bird, it's a plane. No, the United States government has detected and is tracking a high altitude surveillance balloon that is over the continental United States right now. The latest on that when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Poge. Well, this past week saw one of the more bizarre stories we've seen in the political arena in some time. 
this giant balloon floating over Montana. Apparently, it's from China, and there are some suspicions that it is, in fact, a spy balloon. Now, we thought we were well beyond that with satellites and planes and everything else, but nevertheless, this has a lot of people in Washington and at the Pentagon scratching their heads. Joining me now is ABC's Alex Stone, who's been covering this from the beginning. And first off, why a balloon? Well, it's a good question. I mean, it's something that, according to the Pentagon, that that we've seen before. We may not publicly have known about it, but they have tracked balloons that have come in from China, uh, maybe more over Hawaii than over the, the continental U.S., but that this isn't something uh, totally new. Uh, China is trying to claim that, that this is just an errant weather balloon, nothing more than that, um, that it got away from them. The Pentagon is saying, no way. This is absolutely a spy balloon, um, that it doesn't only move with the wind, that China can control it. You know, the, the initial thing was, well, maybe whatever it is, it did just get away from them. Uh, and uh, the, at least the understanding that we're getting from the Pentagon is, It can be moved. It's got spy equipment on board. It generally flies with the wind, but they do have the ability to control it. It hung over Montana for quite a while, um, and that that was manually controlled to uh, be over that that area, maybe because of all the the nuclear missile silos. Um, But at the Pentagon, they're saying, no, this is absolutely a spy balloon saying this. We are aware of the PRC's statement. Um, However, the fact is uh, we know that it's a surveillance balloon. Uh, and I'm not going to be able to be more specific than that. Brigadier General Pat Ryder there. And the, the thing is absolutely huge, uh, about three buses in size. And that's why even at 11 miles up, people have been able to see it as it's been making its way across the U.S. You, know, you think of an airliner when they're at altitude at 36,000, 38,000 feet. That's 20,000 feet below where the balloon is. But you typically can't see the plane or you can barely see it. Um, you may be able to hear it, but but not see it. This thing is 20, 25,000 feet above that, and it is clearly visible from the ground. Um, and again, it was in Montana for a while. Uh, it, the folks were seeing it. They didn't know what they were seeing earlier in the week. Uh, they were recording it, seeing you know this thing that looked like a tiny moon that was floating in the sky. This thing is up in the sky. Chase Nowak was among them, <laughs> and F-22s were launched in case the command was given to shoot it down. They were circling around it. I have no idea what this thing is. I hope. It's and in the focus. last couple of days, we've heard air traffic control of civilian airliners reporting in that they can see it and they know where it is. And that's kind of where we how we've known where it's been flying. It doesn't have a transponder on board, which is how if you open up flight radar or any of the flight tracking sites, you're not actually looking at real radar. You're looking at the pings coming from transponders uh, on aircraft of where they are and their altitude and all of that. This doesn't have one on board. So tracking it publicly has been just based on people on the ground saying, well, there it is. The military says they are tracking it in a more sophisticated way. Um, there was one on on Friday, uh, a balloon that people on the tracking apps thought it was this balloon over Oklahoma and then into Alabama. That turned out it did have a trans uh, a, uh, uh, the device on board that they would have needed to, to be able to, to track it. And uh, and it was a different balloon. It was a regular science balloon, had the transponder um, and and wasn't that one. So if if, you know, folks listening, if they were one of those watching that thinking it was this balloon, this one's on a totally different track. It's been over Missouri today. They believe heading out to the Carolinas, then probably out to the Atlantic Ocean. Um, but it's not going to pop up on any uh, uh, tracking software. So I guess the, the big question is, if this came from China, how did we not detect it until it was over the continental U.S. and in the central continental U.S. over Montana, no less? 
Well, you know, the, the Pentagon says they've been tracking this for a long time, that they were watching it over the Aleutian Islands and then over Alaska and then uh, wherever it went from there to make its entry into the, the U.S., that they did know about it and that they were watching it and that they have seen things like this before, um, but it only became public. And then and some of that was because air traffic was shut down around the Billings Airport earlier in the week. Um, because uh, the F-22s were launched, they thought they might shoot it down, but then they did not get the order to do that. The The military is saying it has advised the president that it would be too risky to do that. They don't think China can get a lot out of this, uh, similar to what they would get from satellite imagery. And uh, the, the shooting it down over a populated area or even non-populated, but at 60,000 feet, debris raining down could go for hundreds of miles. Do they say it's too risky in that way? But there are a lot of calls to shoot it down people saying they understand that but there's a lot of open land in the u.s where they feel like over montana or oklahoma that it could have been done um but apparently we did know it was coming in um but it was something that publicly was not known but the decision was made not to shoot it down and we really don't know what's on board you know if we're not shooting it down there there could be any number of things that that are on board that could cause problems on the ground not only with I guess we would say kinetic damage, but I mean, you might start fires. I mean, there there could be other things on there as well. Absolutely. Yeah, they believe it is mainly high-end imagery equipment, but uh, what would come raining down exactly? What is it? They don't know that. We do have sources telling us that there is a potential plan out there. Of uh, One scenario would be let it go out to the Atlantic, shoot it down there, and then retrieve it after shooting it down in an area where you know it's not going to come down and hurt anybody. Um, but, but if that would be carried out, that's one potential scenario out there um or just let it keep flying and you know then who does it whose problem is it then uh, europe eventually or middle eastern countries or african countries uh, uh, hard to say it'll eventually come down on its own but when that's going to be even they don't know but this has also caused an international crisis secretary of state anthony blinken has canceled his trip to beijing over this uh, he has and then there are a lot of questions about what this is going to mean politically um, and and obviously that trip to, to call it off was coming amid a lot of calls of, well, what is the U.S. going to do that the U.S. isn't doing really anything at this point? And there are many lawmakers and even some on on the side of Democrats of the White House saying that they feel like they're not doing anything makes the administration look weak. The administration saying it's not safe to, to shoot it down. Um, and there's also some who believe that shooting it down would be a provocative move that, yes, it is in U.S. airspace. Yes, it is above the U.S. Uh, land and taking, presumably, taking pictures of U.S. land. Um, but shooting it down would be uh, seen in the the world community as a violent act against it. And then what would that mean? So there's a lot of politics at play here, uh, mixed with safety, mixed with, you know, so many aspects of this diplomacy. And, and right now it's being allowed to, to fly along. All right, ABC's Alex Stone from Los Angeles. Thank you so much for your time and insight. You got it. Thanks, Jeff. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, the fight over who gets to sit on which committees. I stand with Representative Omar in what played out to be a uh, retaliatory, revengeful, and racist vote to remove her. When the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelup. 
Here's Kim Shepard. The tit for tat continues escalating as House Republicans vote to oust another Democrat from a committee seat. Ilhan Omar from Minnesota removed from the Foreign Affairs Panel. ABC's Andy Fields on the Northwest Newsline. And what led up to the removal this time? Well, Kevin McCarthy, who's now the House Speaker, had promised he was going to remove her because of a number of things she said. She offhandedly said something happened on 9-11. She made some comment that many people thought was anti-Semitic. She has since said she had no idea that it was anti-Semitic. Remember, she wasn't born here in the United States. She's an immigrant. She's also a Muslim. And she basically said uh, something about it all being all about the Benjamins and something with Israel, kind of a Jewish trope about money and money lending and that sort. And she has since apologized for this. She said, look, I, I didn't realize that this was an offensive thing. I've learned. Anyway, those and a couple of other statements that she's made angered Kevin McCarthy and said she shouldn't be on a foreign affairs committee, that uh, she's some sort of security risk for saying these types of things completely ignoring members of his own party who have said very bizarre things, uh, in some cases threatened violence. AOC, Ocasio-Cortez, the representative from New York today, got on the House floor and, and said a Republican member of Congress had threatened her life, and he is on prestigious committees, and yet they're kicking Elon Omar off this committee for things that she said that were offensive to people. There was one congressman today, David Joyce, he's a Republican, who voted present saying, look, we shouldn't be doing this. This should be an ethics committee thing if they want to kick someone off. If she did something wrong, she should be reprimanded in the ethics committee and it should go through that, but at least have a chance to have due process. He voted present. He was the only Republican to do that. All the other Republicans voted to kick her off. They're in the majority by a few votes, and she's now no longer on that committee. Now, this is not a completely unprecedented move, but it's something that really started during the last administration when Democrats decided to remove a couple of Republicans. Is there any concern about the slippery slope idea that we could wind up with nothing but Republicans or nothing but Democrats on some of these committees? Is there any mechanism to protect against that? Not really. (laughs) If the majority rules in the House, uh, unlike the Senate, where you need a supermajority here. Uh, but David Joyce said, look, you know, this is we can't continue going down this road and still have a high, healthy institution. He said, as Mahatma Gandhi said, an eye for an eye. And eventually the whole world's going to be blind. Are we done with the rearranging of deck chairs at this point? Or are we expecting any more <laughs> folks to get kicked off committees? Well, we don't know that Congress is quite yet the Titanic, but we'll see. As far as we know, those are the only assignments we've been told so far. But even Kevin McCarthy's seat isn't safe because in order to get his job, he had to guarantee some of the further right conservative members of his own party that Any one of them could say, hey, we're not happy with what you're doing and we're going to call to have you removed. So a lot of what he's doing may be to placate some of those members that he promised he would do these things. ABC's Andy Field on the Northwest News Line. And that's Northwest News Radio's Kim Shepard. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, a legislative roundup with some of the new laws Olympia is considering when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Finally this week, a legislative roundup from Olympia with some of the more interesting bills lawmakers are working on. 
We begin with an effort to combat cover-ups of child sexual abuse within religious institutions. Here in Washington State, church leaders are not necessarily required to report suspected child sexual abuse to law enforcement. Senate Bill 5280 hopes to change that. Folks, I bring this legislation before you today because children need to be able to trust adults. And they need to have trusted adults in their life that when they're being abused, they can go to them and trust that they will help to make it stop. That's Democrat Noel Frame, who sponsored the legislation. Investigate West reports similar legislation has been proposed several times in multiple states, but often failed due in part to resistance from the Catholic Church. Senator Frame's bill had its first hearing last month and is now passed out of committee. Also, should the state eliminate the statute of limitations for civil claims for victims of child sexual abuse? Democratic State Representative Daria Faravar has introduced such a bill. Trauma significantly affects the way that our brains work, and it can take time for survivors, especially children, to be ready to seek that justice and speak their truth and share their stories. But others are concerned that the bill will lead to a flood of litigation that the accused cannot possibly defend against. Carrie Silverman is with Americans for Tort Reform. If sued, there may be no no doubt that a plaintiff experienced horrific abuse, but the question that would be difficult or impossible to fairly answer in many cases, when the perpetrator's dead, the staff of the time is gone, the records haven't been saved, is whether 40, 50, or 60 years ago an organization had sufficient policies and practices in place. The bill has only had its first hearing. State lawmakers are also considering an outright ban on underage marriages. Now, you might think underage marriages would already be banned, but no, they're just restricted. At the moment, Washington permits 17-year-olds to marry with parental consent, and unions involving someone under the age of 17 can be permitted if a judge finds a showing of necessity. But House Bill 1455 would eliminate those exceptions. Democrat State Representative Monica Stonier sponsored the bill, saying that in the 21st century alone, there have been thousands of underage marriages here in Washington State. In my research, in the years before changing the this age, there were about 4,800 marriages that were um, below the age of 17. And that's just between the years of 2000 and 2018. No one testified against her bill. Now, your kids might have to wait an extra five days before chanting, no more pencils, no more books. This under a bill to extend Washington's school year. The goal of Senate Bill 5505 is to address pandemic learning loss that led to a lower reading and math scores as well as yearly summer learning loss. Tyler Munch is with the state superintendent's office and tells the Senate committee that after students return to in-person school. Spring 2022 assessments show 70% of Washington's students were proficient or made progress from the fall 2021 assessment, providing a promising first look at pandemic recovery and acceleration. Now, the bill is sponsored by both Democrats and Republicans and had very little opposition. The early estimates show the additional five school days would cost another $400 million. In other areas of legislation, the waiting period under our state's death with dignity law would be cut in half and more medical providers would be allowed to participate under a new proposal. More from Northwest News Radio's Ryan Harris. The waiting period outlined under the original Initiative 1000 would go from 15 days to seven under the bill, while nurse practitioners and physicians assistants would be allowed to join doctors in helping patients with their decision. Dr. Sharon Quick with Physicians for Compassionate Care Education says a number of factors 
doctors can lead patients to make a rash decision. They often change their minds, but this bill removes that option. A bad day can become a patient's last day. George Hendrickson's wife, Mary, had a brain tumor for 10 years, but he says at the end, the 15-day wait became a race against rapid onset of paralysis. You may hear the opposition say that all pain can be adequately managed. This was absolutely not the case for Mary. The bill would also allow the lethal drugs to be sent by mail or courier to make it easier for people who live far from a pharmacy. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Manufacturers of low-alcohol beverages made from vodka and other spirits complain that the taxes they pay are unfairly high. Now, Northwest News Radio's Corwin Hake reports new legislation would level the playing field. Backers of Senate Bill 5375 say Washington has a double standard when it comes to grocery store hard beverages. In one example, Vicki Christofferson with the Association of Spirits and Wine Distributors compares the taxes on a flavored White Claw hard seltzer with 8% alcohol to a Kettle One vodka drink with 4% alcohol. The 4% vodka beverage is subject to state liquor taxes, $24 a gallon. So you have a lower alcohol product taxed 100 times higher than a higher alcohol product. So we're just trying to create some parity. Scott Waller, a violence prevention advocate, says the disparity serves a purpose. The beverages he calls Alcopop are marketed to young people. The shelves at grocery stores and other retailers are overflowing with these products that are sweet, low-calorie, and contain actual spirits. And he says the higher price prevents overindulgence. The bill would normalize the tax on distributors for various canned and bottled non-beer alcoholic drinks at $2.50 per gallon. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. And finally, recycling more and throwing away less. While the state considers a revamp of Washington's recycling laws and efforts, King County is reimagining what's being dumped. Northwest News Radio's John Libertini reports. To the trained eye, there's a lot to see at the Factoria Recycling and Transfer Station. It's the wood that caught Doug Williams' attention. Tremendously recyclable. You've got a lot of what's called clean wood, so dimensional lumber and things like that that can be reused. King County estimates the Cedar Hills landfill will top out by 2040 if changes aren't made. Adrian Tan is running the program. 800,000 tons are going to our landfill, and about 70% of that could be reused, recycled, composted. To see what's dumped here is enough to make you rethink garbage. And there's a toy plane that looks like an antique. There's a ski bag, skis, poles, and brand new shoes still in the box. The county is pulling together a list of alternatives. Supervisor Cynthia Adams. They don't consider that somebody else would want it. It could be reused, that companies that are secondhand could take those items. Cutting down on waste also means cutting down on greenhouse gas emissions. John Libertini, Northwest News Radio. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogela. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.